there's a unique quality that video games have, especially like video games that you play for a long amount of time where when you're dealing with a world that's plastic, you get insight into your own decision making, your own capacity for cruelty or for love or for tenderness or mercy or whatever that is in this sort of world where the accountability systems are are preset and you can really explore your own humanity there. Welcome to Pixel Therapy, the video game podcast where we look at the games we play through the lens of the player, where what you play is just as important as how you play it, and where emotional intelligence is a critical stat. We have some exciting news for our listeners. Uh, If you haven't uh, been following us on social media, we recently announced that due to the immense level of support that we've been getting from all corners uh, on this podcast, uh, we are going to now be bringing you an interview every other week instead of uh, every three weeks. Uh-huh. So that's very exciting. Uh, you're going to get to hear our lovely voices in your ear holes on a more consistent basis, mm-hmm. uh, making us now the bi-weekly interview podcast where we bring on a guest who may or may not consider themselves a gamer to discuss one of the games that made them and changed them and all the feelings they have about our favorite pastime. I'm your co-host, Jamie. My pronouns are she, her, and the woot-woot in the corner. It's courtesy of me. I'm your co-host, Spencer. Pronouns they, them. And this is Pixel Therapy. So pull up an armchair, maybe lie down on your couch. We're going to talk about our feelings. (laughs) Spencer, what are we playing? What are we playing? I love that we're now playing games at the same time. Like, it's been really cute. Um, (laughs) But I, okay, so I was... I had just finished Ghost of Tsushima and some other stuff. And I was I, I was playing Spiritfarer and then I was kind of like, okay. Um, and I was reading this article about like awesome games that you can play in a weekend. Um, although, okay, once I started this game, I was like, there's no way that I can just play this straight through in one weekend unless oh God, I'm no. just ready to be incredibly depressed. But <laughs> or just like catatonic with emotion. But um, the game game I I was reading about was Kentucky Route Zero. And interestingly enough, I popped into the old PlayStation store and it happened to be on sale uh, as part of their, like, it was this, like, uh, best PS4 titles Mm -hmm. or, like, Mm -hmm. games you have to play on the PS4. Um, So I was like, fuck, this is now two signals that I must play this game. And so... Yeah, the universe is steering you. Yeah, it was steering me. Uh, (gasps) Mm, the the zero was steering me but um funnily enough also kismet i was like jamie i'm playing this random game it's called kentucky route zero and you were like oh my god yeah i was like oh my god i've had that on my backlog uh and literally (laughs) downloaded on my playstation for like uh well i guess wait i think that i think it came out in this current form on playstation not that long ago Mm-hmm. But I did I did buy it recently, or I bought it a while back, and it's been downloaded and just waiting to play, and I've been wanting to get to it. Uh, so when you said you were playing it, I was like, hey, uh, perfect time to dust jump Dust that off. It. Yeah, dust that off. I was kind of similarly, uh, not that I'm aching for things to play. I have a bad habit of buying games when they're on sale and mm. then just having this ridiculous backlog that's like 40 games large at this point. Mm. Um, but it means I've never... Um, Never short of something to play. Uh, but That's yeah, I was funny because like, I'm just like, I'm just going to respond to that thing you just said because I'm totally the opposite. Like I will literally sit on my ass scrolling through the PlayStation store for like two hours until I find the title that I lift from the rubble, like a gem in the rough. And I'm like, this, this is the one I'm going to, this is where all my time is going to go. And so I like only have downloaded enough games that will, that I can like fit that I'm playing but I just think it's the contrast between us of like you have this library of games ready to be played, and I'm just like I devour it, and then I'm onto the next, and I devour that anyway. Okay, but like here's the problem with what I would consider probably an addiction at this point, and probably something <laughs> I need to talk to a real therapist about, is that I have this backlog of games, and yet mm-hmm. when I finish a game, it's still like I will spend hours looking through this backlog trying to figure out Mm. what i want to play next maybe i'll jump into like three different games before three or four different games before i even find something Mm. and the draw to still go scroll the playstation store does not go away Mm. even though i have all these games queued up that 
should all be good games that I should want to play. Like there's still some draw to go find something new. Are you like worried that you're never gonna play all the games you want to play? Or, oh, or when I, you, like, I, I where probably is, couldn't. Where does that come can't. from? I, uh, Let's dive I guess it. what it comes to is, is just like, I mean, as we've mentioned before, I listen to a lot of video game podcasts and I read a lot of mm. video game stuff. And there's just there's so many games out mm. there that sound cool that I want to try. And I because I like a diverse uh, variety of games, mm. too, there's not a lot that comes out that I'm not mm-hmm. interested in trying. So I just end up like wanting to play too many games is yeah. is really what it comes down to. And then there's something about like you know, I hear someone else talking about a game and I'm like, ooh, that sounds really cool. So then I want to go get that game rather yeah. than playing one of the games I already have <laughs> that I heard someone talk about three months ago that sounded really cool, but like now that interest has faded mm. and I want to go get the new thing. Um, Gotta have my finger on the zeitgeist. I, <laughs> for no reason. For no reason. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, and anyway, this... I'm so glad that you suggested this game and that we got into it because I've been wanting to play it for a long time. I I heard about this game initially back in 2013 Mm. when the, cause this is for folks who don't know, Kentucky route zero has like a, a a history. This game uh, is it's an episodic uh, narrative adventure game, side scrolling narrative adventure game. And it was the first, it was kickstarted in 2011 Uh, when it was first announced and the first episode of the game didn't come out until 2013 and they didn't release the last episode until i think january of this year wikipedia says act five was released january 28th 2020 but uh yeah so the game started releasing in 2013 i don't know there's something really i think interesting about the idea of creating a game over the course of seven years Mm. Uh, and and just the fact the way the game comes together with that much time spread mm. between it, it still feels like a full story. Yes. Um. But yeah, so the game was originally being released on PC. I heard about it starting with that first episode back in 2013 and thought it sounded really interesting. It was getting really good reviews, but I've never had a PC that could really run games, even a relatively simple game like this. So I just kept an eye on it and kept hearing it crop up in conversations as the episodes released over the years. And um, when they, yeah, they recently put it all together into a collection and they added these little um, kind of like vignette pieces between each of the episodes. So it's five episodes and there's a little vignette between each of the episodes. And then there's an epilogue Mm -hmm. that you can unlock as well. And that's what Spencer and I both played, which is now available on PlayStation. It's called the TV edition I guess, you know, we're definitely going to spoil this game. Although I have to say that even though we're talking about narrative moments of this game, like if you haven't played this game, I don't think us discussing the narrative moments is going to ruin this game for Mm -hmm. you. So obviously, you know, if you're sensitive to that kind of stuff, you don't want to hear us talk about it, then by all means dip out. But this game is not something that I think anything that I could say to someone uh, about the narrative I don't I don't think anything I could say that's going to ruin the experience of this game because this game is experiential. Like, it's like describing a dream that you had to yes. somebody as you're waking up and it's fading, but there are these strong emotional ties that are making it stand out in your mind even though it's fading away and the more you try to describe it, the more nonsensical it sounds to someone else. Mm. Like you just kind of have to jump into it. Um I it was the stuff that I had re- I'd read about it, I didn't want to get too spoiled on the story, so I was I was just reading some some writing about it before I jumped before I got started, and um, it was just sort of talking about how um, it was described as like a horror game, or like a, almost like a thriller or like a psychological um, type of thing, and I don't know that I necessarily would even characterize it that way. It's it's certainly surreal and it's definitely got, uh, I think magical realism are words, um, that cardboard computer has, the developer has used to describe it. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that resonates, but even saying that it's a side scroller is like, like, yes, that's technically what it is, but the ways that they're able to take that and sort of use perspective and, and lines and geometry to kind of, make it come off the screen into i don't know man it just it felt like a dream (laughs) yeah i'm a dream dream like and surreal are absolutely the right words to describe this game and i think like 
<clears throat> if you have no context for this game, just just Google some images from it. The art is mm-hmm. very interesting. It's very, uh, it almost looks like watercolor. Mm. Uh, or, uh, or like someone cut out pieces of paper and created uh, the like the character models with like um, like just like kind of rough shapes. It's yeah. uh, impressionistic. It's mm. not detailed. There isn't there is detail to the world, but the character models and kind of in general, it's all very much giving you like an impression of what's going on rather mm. than super detailed. And that surreal quality to it, the kind of the the narrative arc of the game is that you start out playing as this uh, truck driver, Conway, who works for an antique store making deliveries for them. And it's like the middle of the night. He pulls up to this gas station in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky, mm-hmm. and he's lost. He's trying to find this address, 5 Dogwood Drive. And he gets kind of sent on this journey, being told that he can only get to 5 Dogwood Drive if he gets on the zero, Kentucky Route Zero. And he's kind of sent down this path of looking for this for the zero. And in a that secret path, highway, a secret highway. And he meets many characters along the way, or maybe they meet him. And you don't just play as Conway. The game doesn't tie you to one character. It starts you with Conway. But you're not. Um, it's not like a narrative game in the way that. Uh, Tell me why that we were talking about a couple weeks ago is a narrative game or not even quite like. um if you've played any of Telltale's narrative mm. adventure games, it, you're not playing as one character, making decisions for that one character. Instead, as you're going through the world and interacting with things, you're getting blocks of text on the screen that are sometimes like a narrator. Sometimes you're inside the character's head. Sometimes you're making dialogue choices. But even when it's narrating, even when you're inside the character's head, you're still making decisions about how the story is going to unfold. And so it's almost like you're co-writing the story as opposed to controlling any one character. And you're not always following Conway. Sometimes you're working with some of the other characters that show up in the narrative. Which ends up being a pretty large cast of characters by the end of the game that you've th- been able to influence. Go ahead. Yeah, I just I think too that when, what you're saying about co-writing the story, like there's I think there is definitely a sort of feeling of unease that runs throughout and I think it's because uh, you know that you are headed somewhere. Like this journey has a beginning and this journey has an end. But there are powers operating outside of your control. And and I would say like the decisions you make, it's more about the perspective that you take on the story or how you decide to react to what's put in front of you. But at the end of the day, the motions you make are, are decided for you. It's about how you choose to, you know, characterize your life. Like I, I just found it to be um, something really powerful about that. I'm trying to find words to describe it, but it's like, um, well, I have a, I have a quote. Oh, okay. That I pulled from PC gamers, former deputy editor, Philippa mm-hmm. war, uh, in an article, a little review that they have of Kentucky route zero. Yeah. She writes, there's considerable beauty in how it acknowledges its limitations and asks what sort of game choices are really the most important. Other adventures. see you decide a character's fate, their successes or failures. Kentucky Route Zero makes a point of asking you to describe their interior instead, Mm. and by extension, yourself as well. However you respond to its ethereal imagery, this is a game which makes a rare suggestion. Who a player is may be more important than what they do. Oh, my God. (sighs) Yeah. Fuck. Yeah, I read that and I was just like, that's the nail on the head. Yeah. Yeah, like I think that, you know, what is this game about? Um, <laughs> I I think that what, what what you just said sort of reminded me of how, like this is a story about, um, you know, the lives of folks who perhaps would be otherwise lost to history or to the grind of capitalism or Mm -hmm. to, you know, the 
the ghost towns from which they hail that have been used up and discarded by the companies that come and and exhaust that land and those people and um you know it's a story about the ways that debt and addiction and guilt can sort of uh color our lives and and perhaps make us feel lost uh like mm-hmm. we may be the ones traveling on this infernal highway <laughs> yeah. but at the same time i feel like this game is acknowledging that um like i think there's that line near the end of the game like look for me under the soles of your heels and it's mm-hmm. like um destruction and cycles of violence are kind of inevitable like we live in a world that is painful and full of suffering um uh, near the end of the game there's this big storm um that destroys a town and it destroys the town because the power company that had built it up um didn't really build it with proper draining um it got like there were like reasons why the com- it wasn't worth it for the company to be there anymore and continue developing the town so they just left but the people were still there and so when the town is destroyed um your group sort of comes upon it and uh, like makes a decision about choosing to to stay there and and build something for themselves. And it's like, no matter where we settle, uh, you know, there was someone else who came before and mm-hmm. there was someone else who tended land that makes it possible for us to now grow vegetables on it. And mm-hmm. maybe they're lost uh, and maybe we can't stop the the wheel of, of capitalism. We can't stop these corporations from destroying lives but we can choose to rebuild and we can choose community and we can choose to, uh, you know, do what we can just to support each other. And um, like, it's, it's hopeful, but it's also a hope that sort of accepts the reality of. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, yeah, it's very realistic and it's portrayal of hope. It's not, um, not just like naive bright-eyed hope Mm -hmm. it's hope that uh is almost more powerful because it comes from a grounding in in realism and sadness and an acceptance of uh just how shitty the world can be like the reality of that uh, there's also in that last chapter a lot of uh talk about how everything is kind of built on the bones of something else yes Mm. um that the entire i think there's actually a line something to the effect of the town was built on top of a, a burial mound. Mm. Um, and, but they're, they're also like, well, isn't, is, aren't all things built on top of the grave of something else? Mm. Um, that just, I don't know. It's, it's an incredibly deep game that I think is wrestling with, uh, some really important themes, especially, um, just as an American and our relationship to capitalism and consumerism and white culture and the way we have to, be productive and throw ourselves into our work and that's kind of the only way to atone or like provide value for anything and the game's kind of like challenging that Mm -hmm. notion um or at least reflecting it back at us and that that surreal quality to the game the way it because uh you know as i said that that narrative arc of conway trying to find the zero all five episodes are spent with them trying to find this address, this five mm-hmm. dogwood drive. And yet every step that they take seems to pull them further from it and mm-hmm. pulls them more into surreal worlds and, and strange spaces with new characters. And so it has this feeling of like, yeah, that dream that you can't quite wake up from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and because everything takes place at night, the entire game is set over the course of a night in the middle of nowhere. And it's like the whole atmosphere that it builds between the music and the art Mm. and that whole feeling of like just wandering through the dark in the middle of nowhere as someone who grew up in the middle of nowhere Mm. and like has driven on country roads at night when there's no other lights or anything. Mm. It just captures that whole feeling so Mm. well. It's such a lonely haunted uh, feeling like this game is haunting and I still feel kind of haunted by Mm. it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, it has that gloomy sort of periwinkle twilight that follows you 
This, mm-hmm. It's a mood. It's a, it's a feeling. It's, it's a yearning for something. It's, yeah, I, I don't even, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Um, something that I, that you just reminded me of what, like when we talk about you know, the American relationship with consumerism and capitalism, like it made me think of this, uh, like this motif throughout of, um, this distillery where the, uh, this, whiskey called hard times liquor hard times whiskey is is brewed um and you find that there are these workers who have come to work at the distillery because for one reason or another whether it's medical debt or addiction or loans that were bad like they all have some sort of debt that they're working off at the distillery Mm -hmm. Um, but they also are kind of addicted to the hard times whiskey itself, which is very expensive to drink. Um, And because this is a very demanding job and it's like round the clock work, what the company does is, is offer to its employees uh, this, this uh, ability to uh, replace their body parts with uh, the, this, um, this fake golden material that turns them into these skeletons essentially, Mm -hmm. but buys them more energy more uh, uh it buys them back credit um that they mm-hmm. that will uh, allegedly uh eat down their debt and so um i think on the one hand it sort of speaks to the dehumanization of workers that like literally that can happen when we're only focused on profits and when we're feeding into this idea of of debt which is like invisible and and meaningless in a world that really doesn't value or prioritize money, but in our world is something that literally destroys lives. Like it's one of the Mm -hmm. most stressful things um, that can be placed upon a person. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's another scene uh, that you mentioned, Jamie, the one with uh, the, the board operator in the tunnel that I thought would be cool for you to talk about. Cause I think this touches on that concept as well. Uh, yeah. So Spencer's referencing a conversation we were having earlier today. Uh, we can't stop talking about this game. We, we really can't. And I don't think I'll be able to for quite a while, to be honest, but there's a, a scene where you're in a tunnel trying to deliver, um, a, a different package to someone else. And you come across, uh, this woman named Poppy, who's working this board. Uh, she's a board operator and she's, there's the way they imagine this, there's this this, there's a board, you know, an operation switchboard, and there's all of these chairs in front of it, but Poppy's the only one sitting there. And she's talking about how the the power company um, realized that they could uh, get a machine to do the job of the board operators. And so they put this machine in and they let go of the board operators. But what they realized is that the machine couldn't get the timing quite right, that the machine was, I think, too fast mm-hmm. uh, and that it was too fast for the switches. And so they actually ended up keeping Poppy on, the only board operator that they kept on. And her job is to uh, basically teach the machine how to get the timing right. Except that she thought she would be doing that for a week. Mm-hmm. And then they kept, they've kept her on now for a year. She's been doing this, sitting down in this, <laughs> it's literally just a dark tunnel with a, almost like a sewer tunnel with a river flowing through. And she's sitting at this, at this board. Doing the work Um, of 13 people. Doing the work of 13 people um, with the assistance of a machine and supposedly teaching the machine to be her replacement, except Mm -hmm. that the company has not yet replaced her. And she starts, she's talking to this other character about this. And she's, uh, she's like, she asked the other character, how long do you think that it would take for this machine to learn this from me? And you're playing the other character whose name is Shannon and you can, uh, choose one of three options, like a day, a week, or a year. You know, you can you can answer it. And I chose maybe a week. And she says, uh, yeah, that's what I said. But this has been going on for over a year, and a very dark thought has started to nag at me. What if there is no cheap machine that's going to replace me? What if it's cheaper just to keep me here, filling in for the rhythm of the operators? What if I'm the cheap machine? <sighs> I gotta say, like, I have never been one whose like predilection is to move towards like very heavily text-based games. Mm-hmm. Um, but the writing in this game is, is unbelievably gripping. And yeah. 
um, like lines like that just cut right through. Yeah. No. And the writing, especially the way it intermixes the narrative and the internal monologue um, with everything, it's, it's closer to like, like I said before, and you're, and you're co-writing it. So you're getting to Mm -hmm. influence it and make decisions about the, the interiors of these people's lives and some of these dialogue choices. And even though it doesn't dramatically affect the story, you're you're helping color in the story and co-create it. And so it feels like you're co-writing a novel or, or sometimes like you're co-writing poetry or sometimes like you're co-writing a play mm. uh, and you're participating in the creation of that and, and also experiencing it at the same time. Mm. And it's just, uh, I, I don't know, man. I think too, like, like a dream, it is pointless for you to try and wrap your head around the enormity of it, especially in just one playthrough. I think something that we talked about recently was that, um, as people who are used to like RPGs or games where the point is to collect a lot and to explore every inch of a map. Mm. Um, at first, in the beginning of the game, we found it kind of difficult to let go of other paths to just make a decision and not feel like we had to exhaust all of the options around us before mm-hmm. moving forward. I think um, that's definitely something that like that, that letting go of, of knowing everything helped me move forward in the game. And I think also is sort of a function of, of what the game is trying to express. Like Mm. you can't control the entire world. What you can control is your own self and, and what you choose to do with, with the time and, and and the resources that you're given. Um, and like, uh, you know, there are so many mysteries in the game that are impossible to unearth in, in, in just one playthrough. Um, and there's so many little details that make it such a rich experience each time. Um, like something that I thought I just thought of was like, if, if you uh, like press pause, um, you're able to kind of rifle through all of these artifacts that you've picked up along your journey from like Shannon's journal to like little scraps of paper that you've picked up to like pamphlets uh, from like the architects of the zero stuff like that. And um, like, I find that like, I, like I keep having to remind myself that this is a side, like technically like a side scrolling 2d game just because um, like speaking again of the writing Shannon's journal, it has these smell notes Mm. and what they are is like for each scene that you're in, if you go and look into her journal, she writes down um, like the smells of the area. And uh, wow. it was just like such a, um, it was such a immersive touch. Like I've never felt more integrated into like a game world than I did. Uh, like, like things that really, like you said, make it experiential, make it almost feel like a play or like, like it's like it's existing beyond just the screen. Um, mm-hmm. And sorry, I had, I had, taken a screenshot of a page of the notebook because I was like, so I'd never thought of that, never really seen that kind of touch in a game. And it was mm-hmm. very little, like it's just um, like, let's say smells. Uh, and they were in this office building that was in the zero. Um, and it was very mysterious. And there was like in these tunnels and there are all these trees. And so she wrote like toner, rain, wind, trees, smells continued. So much coffee, burning computers, poison, baking bread, booze. And it's just these specific smells that like you can picture that much clearer the Mm. place you're in. And as you were saying, this impressionistic kind of art style, like, ah, it just, everything just comes together in such a way that really puts you in this fully realized world. And and I'm just so blown away by that. And like you said, the continuity they've been able to accomplish over seven years of, of making this story. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it, we always, uh, well, not we, you and I, but like collectively the game industry is like always pushing to better graphics, more realistic. And that's going to be more immersive. The more we can make this person's face look exactly like a real human's face, mm. the more immersed you're going to be in the game. And I feel like a, a game like this, Kentucky Route Zero really takes that notion and says, no, that's mm. not how you put somebody in a game. Like that's not the only way to put somebody in a game. Um, because yeah. I felt uh, more immersed in a part of this world uh, than I have for many 
many games. Like I, I love Ghost of Tsushima. I don't think I felt as inside of the world of Ghost of Tsushima mm-hmm. as I felt inside. Like every time I turn this game on, and maybe it's less that I'm inside of the world that this game creates and more like the world of the game was seeping into my heart yes. through my screen. Uh, and through my headphones, like the the audio design of this uh. game the little and it's such it's little things like you get out of your truck and the lights are on and you can hear the dinging yeah sound of the lights still being on and then just the sound of of being in the middle of nowhere yeah yeah uh they just captured that that audio profile so well and the game Mm -hmm. uses music in a really interesting way yeah i I really can't say enough yeah you have got to play it with headphones like there were moments where especially when you're in the zero there'd be things like whispers or Mm -hmm. like just like it was like the combination of being in a cave and hearing the sound of running water and and cave drips and stone and footsteps but also something else something living something but not like living like a monster it was as if the I felt like I was in the underworld on the Mm -hmm. zero on in this mysterious plane and I would have to take off my, I would lift my headphones from time to time just to make sure that that was part of the game because I just couldn't Mm. believe the incredible richness of the sound. Um, Mm -hmm. It was unforgettable. I I wish more people knew about this game. I I feel bad because I I know it's hard to listen to people describe, half describe scenes that you haven't experienced, but seriously, like just play this game. It, it's hard to describe. Uh, it's, but you've got to play it. <laughs> yeah, you got to play it. Or you know, I'm sure you can find um, video of people playing yes. it online at this point. If you if you don't have the um, if you don't have a console, if you don't have the means to uh, or, or a good enough PC to be able to run this, um, I'm sure you can find footage of people playing it. I do think it's worth experiencing um mm. in that way and getting the full experience not just the narrative beats which honestly sound a little kooky when they're laid out because the game does have a really yeah dreamlike quality whatever you think the game is it's i assure you it's not like i like even the way we're describing it like it it defies genre and i think that it has something to offer a lot of people who play games for a lot of different reasons. Um, I think that, and even folks who don't play games, this is not a, it's not a mechanically complex game. Right. It's not, uh, you know, I think if you can find a way to get your hands on this um, or experience in some way, you're going to get something out of it and you don't have to know a lot about how to play games or be someone who plays games regularly. Exactly. Exactly. Sorry that what I meant to say was, Regardless of what you get out of gaming or why you play games, like this game will challenge you and it will also, I think, expand your notion of what gaming can do, especially with the format that they did it in. Um, and I, like you said, like the way that it invites you to, uh, you know, explore different choices not because it will change your fate, but because it will reveal something about yourself. Mm. Like, I feel like there's a lot to learn about, um, you know, your, our, our own personal relationships with our own mortality, with our regrets, with, you know, the, the hardships of life and, um, and what it takes to move on. Like, I think there's just a lot here. (laughs) Yeah. 100%. So, I think we'll pivot now. <laughs> you have a really deep uh, and and rich interview with Jamila Bradley, mm-hmm. uh, who is an activist. I believe you've described them as an icon, Spencer. Mm-hmm. They are uh, a non-binary icon. <laughs> there we go. Uh, they also do olfactory anthropology. Yeah. Essentially, they are someone who uh, I would describe as a connector. They have They have inhabited so many types of roles uh, and communities in their life. And I think that there's someone who sees the ways in which the intersections of our passions, our identities, our hobbies, our upbringing, like it, it all works together to create the people that we are. And also by looking at, um, you know, the things we love in different ways, it enables us to learn new truths about each other and the world around us. Like, I, I think that there's someone who, I love the way that they think about games, love the way that mm-hmm. they talk about games. 
um, specifically Final Fantasy X, which, which they come on to discuss with us. I'm just really excited for them to share their thoughts with us and on how they game. Absolutely. Uh, so without further ado, here's our interview with Jamila Bradley. Jamila, thank you so much for being with us today. I am so excited to be sharing space with you in the virtual pixel therapy studio. Um, for those who don't know, Jamila is a non-binary icon. Uh, they co-author the Massachusetts State Plan to End Youth Homelessness uh, here in our, me and Jamie's current state of MA. Um, and they have been advocating for years for our queer and trans, indigenous immigrant communities um, as a writer, as an organizer. Uh, I know Jamila as an artist as well. Um, these days you're in Italy. Can you tell us more about what you're up to? Yeah, so I am in Turin. I'm in Torino uh, as of the first. I initially moved here to be in Venezia, where I was studying fragrance and olfactive anthropology um, and putting together a cultural project. Um, COVID sort of derailed that for me. My program is currently um, not resuming until 2021. Um, mm. But I sort of took advantage of some of the unsupervised energy of this year and decided to stay here and see what sorts of value the time zone difference in a little space uh, could mm. add to some of the movement building and the work that's happening in America. Awesome. Awesome. And can you tell us more about, just since you mentioned it, what is an olfactive anthropologist? Yeah. So it's kind of invented. Uh, I think that a lot of stories get told um, in so many different sensory forms. We have a history for food. We have a history for visual art, sculpture, theater, um, and we don't really have a history for for our sense of smell. And when you think about the the ways that power has moved, it's been around these olfactive resources. And there's so many cultural and identity components that that touch on smell. Um, and so I really wanted to elevate it to art and also use it as a vehicle to tell stories and, and express thoughts and ideas. Mm, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so this is so Pixel Therapy is a video game podcast. Um, and what we do here is, you know, we love games. Um, like we play games for lots of different reasons. Um, but I think identifying as a quote unquote gamer, it carries with it a certain connotation. There's a lot of baggage when we think about like the gaming community and who's allowed to, to be a gamer and what does a gamer look like and act like. Um, and I'm curious, like as someone who is an anthropologist, as someone who has studied social, emotional learning. Um, you know, we often talk about video games. Uh, they've, they've been called empathy machines because the idea is that if you are fully immersed in someone else's perspective, like why wouldn't that make you a more empathetic person? And I'm just wondering, um, like, do you, do you think of video games as empathy machines? Like, like how do you think of, of, of gaming and, and the value of gaming as, as an anthropologist? Um, I think, I, I think of it two ways. I think of the, the immersive component and also the way that, that video games come, come and reflect in our lives, in our, in our daily doings. Um, I think there's a lot of capacity for video games to be, um, an empathy machine in the way that empathy works both ways. There's the things that you're able to immediately relate to that sort of crack you open in, in new and exciting ways. And there's also the things that you find wholly unrelatable and reimagining stories to either involve you, include you, to make you question things. Like I, I played Tomb Raider. That game had a very significant impact on me that wasn't entirely positive. Um, but it mm. made me ask a lot more questions about myself and my beliefs. I think also there's a unique quality that video games have, especially like video games that you play for a long amount of time where when you're dealing with a world that's plastic, you get insight into your own decision makings, your own capacity for cruelty or for love or for tenderness mm. or mercy or whatever that is in this sort of world where the accountability systems are are preset and you can really explore your own humanity there. Mm. That's lovely. I Would you feel comfortable saying a little bit more about the impact Tomb Raider had on you and, and why it wasn't super positive? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember playing that game as a pretty, pretty young person. I think I had it on a PS1. Um, and I remember like playing it with a bunch of neighborhood kids in a very stealthy, like somebody stole an older brother's game. And I remember the mm. way that the kids in my neighborhood were talking about this character and the way that she looked and like the way that they had decided to structure her body um, and, and 
I remember being like, how could she physically move through 3D space? Like, you, there's no way that like you can have breasts that large and do a backflip without really yet another unrealistic standard set (laughs) she needs a seat she needs water she's dying like her back must be killing her and like watching her move (laughs) through this world with like strength and authority and skill and knowing that like for some reason she had to be packaged this way in order for it to be viable for people, particularly um, for men to want to mm-hmm. play this game, to want to have mm. a really awesome, really capable, savvy, often very funny character that she had to be sort of compelling sexually in these ways that are reflected mm-hmm. in our society. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, she has to be palatable specifically to the cis white male gaze, like, I think something that we've touched on a bit in this podcast is like the construction of the gamer identity being built around these tenets of like toxic masculinity, like being the most violent, being the loudest, being able to dominate everyone else in a room. And and like, you know, uh, just that isn't necessarily relatable or true to the experience for everyone who likes to engage with games. Um, And so that brings me to my next question, which is, do you identify as a gamer? I think in my heart, yes. Um, video mm-hmm. games have always been a very private space for me. And those that's one type of gaming that I do. I also love table games. So in that way, mm-hmm. I'm a gamer. You want to play Ghost Court. You want to like, I love the creativity <laughs> that goes into tabletop games. And I, I love role-playing games. You know, I, I played a, my first campaign of D&D two years ago. And like, that was magical. I love Magic the Gathering as well, speaking of magical. Mm-hmm. Um Video games have always been more of a personal place for me. Um, when I was younger, I was very much into the whole sort of like um, MLG world and, and testing new games and GameStop midnight releases. Um, mm. And as that culture started to wear on me and not create expansive moments for my relationships to games or my identity, I kind of receded. It became more of a personal mm. vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that resonates. Um, like I... I find that I also have very personal relationships with games because I know that um, like there aren't many people that I would that I know of in my peer group who play games like or who are open about playing games. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's also a lot of hangups around um, like I have no problem if people label me a nerd, but it, there is sometimes still this reaction you get from folks when you say like, oh, I love playing video games. I played video games all day yesterday. There's this sort of assumption that like, oh, is everything okay? Like, is, is something wrong? And it's like, no, I just love this beautiful world and participating in it. Um, yeah. Did you have any thoughts on that? It looked like you were about to say something, but. No, I'm just wholeheartedly agreeing. You know, I think the reality is that I, I think people who, who haven't created strong connections to video games specifically, they don't actually understand it as as a, as a, as an art form and as, as media in the way, like if you want to lay around and watch like movies all day, that's considered the self care day. Um, mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with immersing yourself in a world in that way. But if you want to participate in it and think strategically and move around in it, that changes it. And and that's an interesting point that I'd never considered. Yeah. And it's, it's true. Like, so I used to, uh, or I still do occasionally, but I got my start in, in writing by covering arts and culture news. And specifically, I would I reviewed a lot of theater. And theater, um, you know, is an art form that's very ephemeral in the moment. Um, you're in a room, you're creating something that will not be duplicated in the same way again. Um, and I think similarly, I, I, I never really thought about games as something like that, as as like a um, something that I'm creating just as much as it exists there for me to play with. Um, like the game is going to be wholly unique to how I interact with it because I'm not just bringing my own ex- perspective and lived experience to it, but I'm making decisions in the game that someone else might not make, or I'm interpreting the dialogue and the characters in a certain way that someone else might not. Like, I mean, just look at how many characters I insist are gay and that people insist are straight. Like, <laughs> um, you know, there's something interactive and and really uh, I think games can change you and so yeah I think that it it's really important to think about them as art and it's surprising to me that more people don't (laughs) 
know, you mentioned a bit about how you interacted with games as a young person, and um, we talked a bit about Tomb Raider. What role do video games play in your life uh, these days? Um, right now, I play a game of some sort every day. Um, I Right now, I'm really into Magic the Gathering Arena, um, but there's been some really cool um, smaller games that, that I've been playing, and, and I've been finding myself more engaged in in ambiguous games that sort of op- mm. that offer you a setting and that are more based on decision making. So there's one I forget the name of it um, that I've been playing uh, where you're essentially reviewing footage, tons of videos, and you're trying to figure mm. out something happened and you're just trying to figure out what and you can search keywords and you mm. can sort of move through this desktop space and that's the game. Mm. Um, and so things like that that sort of allow me to take really abstracted time with myself where I don't have to be like in therapy or like journaling, Mm. but I can be aging with my psyche, my little weird brain a little bit um, while occupied with something else are super exciting for me. Yes. Yes. I love that. Uh, Was it telling lies? Is telling lies the game? Telling lies. Yes. There you go. (laughs) Nice. Yes. I haven't played that one yet, but it's on the list. It's cool. It's really is that cool. Steam or what's, what platform is that? It's definitely it's definitely on Steam, and I think it it came to PlayStation not that long ago. I just bought oh. it on PlayStation recently, so cool. I think it's out on most platforms now. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, um, yeah. We were talking to another person uh, who's a streamer, and she was saying how um, games for her can be like um, like cognitive behavioral therapy. Like she's able to engage with this system and you know, get out of her own head, but also learn things about herself and process things. Like mm-hmm. um, she's someone who uh, lives with chronic pain and and with gaming, she's able to stop feeling pain because she's able to immerse in this world. Um, and I love this idea of games as a sort of therapy that you do, like a self-service therapy with yourself. Like you really are learning. You're an intimate space with your own mind. <laughs> um, it's really cool. So... On the show, you know, we ask guests to come in and share a story with us about a video game that had some sort of significant impact on their life. Um, and so you shared with us that you would love to come in and talk about Final Fantasy X. Um, yeah. And we know the Final Fantasy titles are, are, are renowned for their narrative complexity. So I won't try to make you uh, boil down the, an 80 hour game story, but like, if you were to describe Final Fantasy X to someone who had never played it in a couple sentences, what would you say? <laughs> All right. So, look, there's a person. He's pretty dope. He gets dropped out of space and time by this concept called Sin. And he joins this, like, sort of dope, quasi-ragtag, very layered personality group. One of them who's trying to like get rid of the sin while quite evangelical. And as they move through this world, sort of capturing the, the aeons, the little mystic monsters they need to ultimately bring down sin, they are demystifying and, and dissecting the concept of truth and identity and knowledge in that process. Um, and guess what? Sin was manufactured mm. by the powers that be to make everybody feel terrible and to terrorize people. So sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. I mean, okay. I have to say, so like Final Fantasy X first came out in like 2001 and I, I did not play it when it first came out, but I have to say, um, something about those early aughts aesthetics, all the buckles, all the layers, the like pop punk chains, it really like those hairstyles, it really awakened something in me. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, you spoke a little bit about about it, but what's what's the significance of Final Fantasy X to you? What was its impact on you? I first, okay, Lulu is amazing. Lulu is like the hottest person in the world when <laughs> the game came out to me. I'm obsessed with mm-hmm. her. She's not friendly. She's extremely efficient. She looks dope. She's not friendly. I loved everything about Lulu. The idea that she was supposed to be somewhat in love with a sort of like daffy, silly dude did not make any sense to me. And I just pretended mm-hmm. that that didn't exist. I think the other thing <laughs> for me with Final Fantasy is this concept of, of sin and faith and sort of the way that this game really played on 
the ways that belief systems can steal from your humanity and your ability to make decisions for yourself. Um, one of the characters mm. in the game, um, Yuna, is a, a summoner of these aeons, and it's her responsibility ultimately um, to take down sin. And at a certain point, after m- many sacrifices that she makes, almost getting married, I think twice, um, she realizes that like the final mm-hmm. aeon that she has to summon is going to kill her. And as she gains more information and her sort of spiritual beliefs start to change and evolve, as she starts to become um, less influenced by dogma and more influenced by herself and what she's experiencing in this world, a lot of things happen. But ultimately, she goes, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. That's not worth it to me. And that's a really interesting um, character arc, especially as a kid that was dealing with some religion, some some mm. really stressful feelings around queerness and identity. Um, that was a really cool mm-hmm. thing to see play out. Yeah, like something that I like in reading and pulling up a lot of the uh, writings about this game when it first came out, it was really cool to note that um, first for... I mean, this was 2001, so female representation in, or non-male representation in gaming, these characters, Lulu and Yuna, stood apart um, from a lot of uh, uh, women characters in that time as being really fully fleshed out, having personalities that were not inherently catering to male characters and just being like general badasses, which is it's cool to see. Um, another thing that was really unique about this game is that it was the first Final Fantasy title that had um, 3D graphics and voice acting, like actual voice acting overlaid um, on the the text. And I think, you know, having like RPGs, um, you you know, you get you read all that text, you're reading through a lot of conversations, a lot of narrative. And when it's silent, um, it's really on you to kind of craft that narrative. I think there's something really awesome about when you're adding voice where voice did not exist before, suddenly this game becomes a lot more emotionally gripping and and it becomes a lot more real. Um, And, you know, yeah, I just, I just thought that was cool. (laughs) I didn't have a question there. Um, But so when did you play Final Fantasy for the first time? Like, did you play it when it first came out or was it something that you came upon later? I came upon it later. So I think I must have been in middle school. That feels mm-hmm. right to me. That's when I was in my room playing a lot of video games. That's sort of when I started creating a relationship to video games in a meaningful way. Um, and I remember, this is like a very particular thing. And if I find out that I'm alone in it, then I'm going to feel really goofy, but I'm going to share it anyway. It was my first time really playing an extensive RPG. Mm-hmm. And there's something that happens when you start logging hours at the beginning of an RPG where you start dreaming about it. And you're like side questing in your Mm. dreams or there's elements of the game in your dreams. I had never, Mm. ever experienced something like that. And at that point, those graphics and like the glittering world of like Spira and like were in my dreams and like the logic and Mm. the the strategy were were playing out in my dreams. And that was so wild, like as a kid, um, where it's like Mm. to be so immersed in a reality that that it had entered my world. I think that's, yeah, I don't know. That didn't answer your question, but I was just reflecting on that. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, that that's super, like, I, I find when I'm playing a game, for, I mean, because you're spending hours and hours with these characters, with these worlds, like, how can you not sort of feel yourself shift, feel yourself sort of adopt some of the traits or, or like, I find myself thinking like the character or moving through the world, like, as if I was still in the game. I, 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 I very much relate to that. And um, it kind of reminded me, I, you touched on something earlier. You were saying how when you were playing this game, um, it was a time in your life where you were spending a lot of time alone, dealing with difficult feelings, dealing with, um, you know, grappling with identity and, and what it means to you. Um, how did this game sort of help you work through that stuff? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a very like super nerdy response, but one of the things about Final Fantasy X that is super dope is that you have the sphere grid. <laughs> and mm. the sphere grid is really cool because it means that you can take any character you want and the, and decide like your affinities are cool, but if I want a mage to be like a super strong powerhouse, that's what I'm going to do. And the game is going to reward me and behave accordingly. I'm not playing against the game by doing that. 
Um, Mm. And the sphere grid was something that I thought about in terms of my personal life all the time. It was like something about it embedded in my brain. And I started thinking about my attributes and my weaknesses in this really, really concrete way. Like, what are my skills? What are my assets? What does it feel like when my experience isn't matching up with like the powers that are, that are against me right now? What am I well-armed? Am I guarded? Like what's happening? And and to relate Mm. to my thoughts and even my body that way was really, really transformative and and created a really, I think a system of resilience, like a real system of resilience that I hadn't had before. Wow. That is so cool. I, yeah, I, I love this idea of, I think games can really teach a lot in terms of you are literally going up against so much that it really does make you feel that like when you just, the power of perseverance, the power within our own selves to like dig deep and, and find more. Um, like I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a fantasy. It's, it's a totally made up world. It's a world inherently designed by humans, but I think too that it is still like magic. Like you're walking through a portal into another place. Um, and, and you're creating and, and living in that space. Um, that's really cool. It's been a while since you've played the game, but it seems like a lot of details still really stand out in your mind. Um, like what's the most memorable aspect of the game that is, you still carry with you today? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, in terms of gameplay, Blitzball is beautiful and I played it at every opportunity, <laughs> even though it wasn't mandatory. Mm-hmm. That is super fun. Um, I do remember the end of that, towards the end of that game, I forget. It's like um, Yusan or something like that is inside of the sin and it's like a it's a person. And I remember being really terrified by um, the scenes of, of there's there's a lot of really elegant and cinematic um, cut scenes in this game. It's really beautiful. If you, if you could watch it as a movie, it would be amazing. Um, but realizing that like the source of this sin and this like sort of regenerative concept is like under the control of an extremely unstable, like mentally ill man who has operated in isolation for a significant period of time and watching that sort of physical and emotional transformation um, is mm-hmm. one of the most, I don't know. I think that planted a seed that, that echoed in, in a lot of the ways that I think about people um, and things that I'm scared of. Um, mm. It was kind of like the most existential Scooby-Doo mask reveal that you could imagine. <laughs> like, oh, it's just a hurt, scared person in there. Yeah, that's been manipulated mm. by a whole system to keep being scary. Like, oh, and no one's being nice or helpful about it. it mm. Very much a revelation. Yeah, like, um, you know, this game, as you mentioned earlier like it really the themes within it like yes it's a beautiful game it's sometimes a silly game about a jock who's catapulted a thousand years into the future but it's also a game about uh you know corruption and the effect of trauma on communities and societies and um you know as someone who uh works in movement building um you know what kind of lessons do you think this game has to teach about, about, uh, you know, communities and society and, and the way people are? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is that like what we offer power and time and resource to is more important than what's necessarily real. Um, this is a really nuanced game. So like, I don't know if this is like over in the weeds about it, but like in the same way that like the concept of sin wasn't, was manufactured, like, the main characters of the game, like the, the, like they were not real either. Um, you know, they were existing mm. as sort of dream structures in their own ways. Um, you know, it was real. Some of them were real, but not all of them were real. Um, and that when you, when you think about how um, culture and systems and structures and norms get built, the same energy and the same sort of like abstracted things that create systems of oppression can also create really incredible structures for resilience and responsiveness and, and even, um, you know, radical dissent. Um, and that mm. what we can do is move through these systems critically, thoughtfully, um, and trusting our lived experience and trusting our capacity to change. Um, mm. and, be able to see them and transform them just by doing that. 
So this game's often been spoken about as the best game of all time and or and or the best RPG of all time. Um, do you feel like it still holds up as the best RPG of all time? Or do you have any thing that you would change about the game knowing what you know now about yourself? Um, I don't, I, I never really think about things like that. I don't know what the best RPG mm. of all time is. Who's to say that? That's a, like, mm. what, what does that even mean to be mm. that? I don't care. Um, mm. <laughs> that's in mm. what terms? I, it's a great game. It's a, it's a dope game. And I think it can be that. Um, I think a lot of the things that I would, I would change about the game, um, are, are things that maybe shouldn't change so that people can play it in, in the ways that they, they want to and, and see, mm. um, their worlds reflected. But, some of the storyline is is a little confusing and a little distorted, I think, um, in terms of values, uh, the values I hold around like masculinity and femininity and gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that it was a little evasive in how it, it tackled some of the, the topics around religion and, and some of the imagery that was used is more, I think, typically associated to some marginalized religions than others. And that was a little bit rough in a as I was looking through mm. some of my favorite pieces of it today and also like to be really frank they didn't do great like character writing so there's some like weird cousiny overlap <laughs> the romance there that could really be cleaned up a little bit ah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna give you, <laughs> you cousins I'm sorry like <sighs> get it together mm-hmm. ah. Oh my god, I need to I need to go back into the the fandom wiki and learn more about that. I feel like especially right now in this time where folks are super isolated, um we're uh it's like a time of physical isolation, but also like digital connectivity. And you're seeing a lot more engagement with gaming as a hobby. Um, And, you know, knowing that the gaming community has received uh, due criticism for its overwhelming whiteness, cis male gaze, like um, as someone who loves games and, and who also loves thinking about people and how they work together, like what's your hope for like the future of gaming and the gaming community. I mean, I think it's the same. It's in line with my hope for the future for everything. Like the more people participating in something, the more drastically it can change and the more plastic it becomes. The, the, the different kinds of stories that get told, the different characters playing out different kinds of roles, the different reflections of ourselves that we get to see. And I think what I would like the, the sort of the, the normed or the perceived gaming community that does a lot of the gatekeeping and stuff is to realize that like the quality and the value of your games is going to increase the more people you let in because you're going to get more interesting stories, more interesting play, more interesting worlds that you've never seen before because different Mm -hmm. people build and, and create and think and strategize in different ways. And that our job in, in games and in life is to, is to be thoughtful and to make choices and to, and to be reflexive and adaptive. And that those are skills that should be used, I think, across virtual and real, real world. That is so, I, I love to hear you say that. Like, it reminds me of, um, you know, uh, I work as a, a product designer and something that comes up a lot is this concept of inclusive design. Like when the concept was first coined, people would react to it in a very visceral way. Like, oh, you're designing only for this subset of people. So therefore the design is inherently limited. And it's like, honestly, when you're designing within a constraint for a specific need, you find that the product is improved for everybody. Like, Subtitles, for example, subtitles were first invented specifically to meet the needs of hard of hearing deaf folks and deaf folks, like people who, um, you know, needed to read the words on the screen. But what they found was that everyone loves subtitles. Uh, we use subtitles to watch movies in other languages. We use subtitles to learn. We use subtitles when we're multitasking and want to just, um, you know, vacuum and watch TV at the same time. And it's like, you know, subtitles were designed to benefit a certain 
person's needs, but it doesn't mean that they aren't improving life for everybody. And and it's, if anything, inclusive design opens more doors, like you said, to have richer worlds, to have better experiences. Um, and really, if we just shift our perspective, like, that's all we need to do. Yeah. <laughs> Jamila, um, where, what are you up to these days and where can people find you online? I am up to uh, creating trouble uh, in activism and in consulting. I'm working with Hourglass Boston right now on some pretty cool stuff. And you can find me on the internet. I'm at Bright Black Honey on Instagram. Awesome. And for those who aren't familiar with Hourglass, like, could you just give a quick spiel about what Hourglass Boston is? Yeah. I mean, Hourglass is a collective that focuses on all things uh, temporal, all things related to time, how we use our time, um, how we spend our time in meaningful ways, how we nourish ourselves, how we rest, um, and the blending of art, politics, activism. Um, and sort of showing up as a collective in, in all ways, creative and radical and resistant. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, it's a really vibrant online uh, and IRL community, but although I'm sure the IRL is on hold for now. Um, so that's really cool. Jamila, thank you so much for joining us today. Time is up for today's session of Pixel Therapy. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope that listening to our thoughts and feelings gave you some thoughts and feelings of your own. If you enjoyed this episode, we would very much appreciate it if you could rate us and review us on your podcast application of choice. It makes a huge difference for a small, up-and-coming podcast like ourselves. If you want to reach out to us, maybe you've got a great story about a game that changed you, a guest recommendation, a question, or even just a comment for us, whatever it is, we really would love to hear from you. You can reach us by email at pixeltherapypod at gmail.com. And hey, who knows, if you write us something interesting, we may just have to read it on the show sometime. Mm -hmm. You can stay up to date on all things Pixel Therapy, like announcements of upcoming guests, clips of unreleased episodes, and whatever else tickles our fancies by following us on Instagram and other social media at pixeltherapypod, or by visiting our website at pixeltherapypod.com. And finally, since we like to put our money and our energy where our mouths are. We do end every episode with a recommended side quest. Um, Just think of these as ways that you can get involved either locally to your community or on a national scale, um, depending on what we're covering that week. And this week, uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about an organization called Y2Y Network. And that's like capital Y, number two, capital Y, network.org. And what they are is, there's something really cool. They are a group of students that have come together unified around this concept of providing youth to youth peer to peer support for other young people who are experiencing houselessness um this youth to youth model enables um Y2Y to create a really affirming and safe environment for young adults uh, between the ages of 18 and 24 and they have opportunities uh you know not just to uh, be a guest at the shelter, um, but to collaborate with other youth experiencing homelessness, um, to collaborate with other service providers, um, and to create really sustainable pathways out of homelessness um, and really build skills for long-term success outside of the shelter. Um, so Y2Y is really cool. Uh, they're based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and you can find out more, uh, donate, get involved at y2ynetwork.org. Awesome. Thank you, Spencer. That is our show for today. Uh, We hope that you will go forth, run a story mission, level up some stats, participate in that side quest, and don't forget to hug an NPC every now and then. We'll be back soon with some more pixel therapy. Goodbye.